This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, this is Matt Blois. I'm a producer for Big Biology. On our next episode, we're going to try something a little different, and we're asking for your help. We want to hear your questions. These can be big questions about biology, some natural history phenomenon that you're curious about, or something totally off the wall. Ask us anything. Art and Marty will answer as many questions as they can on the next podcast. Send your questions as a voice memo to info at bigbiology.org by April 11th. Again, you should send questions to info at bigbiology.org. Here's the new episode. Right now, there are trillions of microbes living with you, on your skin, in your mouth, pretty much everywhere on and in your body, and that's totally normal. Some of these microbes make us sick, but many help us thrive. As we evolve from savanna-dwelling primates into sitting-dwelling, well, primates, we started to lose touch with many of the microbes that rode around on us for generations. We now build sealed, air-conditioned houses to keep microbes out, and we use all sorts of antibiotics, cleaning products, and other tools to eradicate them. As a result, we've totally transformed the microbes that live with us, and many of those changes are not for the better. On this episode, we're talking with biologist Rob Dunn about how those changes might be affecting us. Rob is a professor of applied ecology at North Carolina State University, and he studies the viruses, bacteria, and fungi that live on and around us. I think probably there are conditions that we've created for ourselves as humans that are so devoid of life that we're not able to make, you know, a a healthy human either, right? And, And so there's some broader lesson. His new book, Never Home Alone, explains how changes in our microbiodiversity is affecting our food, our health, and our happiness. Before we get to our conversation with Rob, we want to give you an example of just how far we've gone to separate ourselves from the natural environment. We sent our producer, Matt Blois, to one of the world's most extreme examples of germaphobic architecture. He spent an afternoon at the Gaylord Opryland Hotel in Nashville, Tennessee. It's a huge building with nearly 3,000 hotel rooms and 15 different restaurants. The center of the hotel is an enclosed atrium with the man-made river and acres and acres of gardens. Guests are totally sealed off from the outside world by a giant glass dome. Here's what he learned when he asked people how they feel about microbes. For somebody who's listening on a podcast, could you describe where we are? What does it look like here? You're really inside of this little uh, tropical oasis. It feels like you're in a very high-ceilinged, greenhouse, sort of, but with hotel rooms. Oh, really big, got a lot of floors, a lot of area. I like it because we don't get rained on. (laughs) We can walk around, it's nice. And you can feel the humidity, it's sticky. Who knows what's floating around in here? How do you guys feel about microbes in general? I guess like when I say, when I say microbes, like what comes to mind? I guess, uh, you know, you want, the good microbes, right? Like in your gut. Is that science? Yeah, that's science. That's, that's science. <laughs> okay. So I would like the good microbes, which I think that things like plants help with that sort of environment and health. 
I mean, I guess like it, it does feel kind of sterile in here, you know, like it's maybe not as natural. Everybody needs fresh air, and most people don't get enough of it. I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. And you're listening to Big Biology. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Um, we really appreciate it. And uh, we're really excited to, to read the book and sort of talk about your, your perspective as a biologist and a, a science communicator. And I guess the way that I wanted to start is to um, get you to explain your new moniker for humans, the Homo Endorus. Where, where does that come from and, and why? Well, I mean, in, in part, it's sort of tongue-in-cheek, tongue and in part, it's a little bit serious. And, the, um, and it, it relates to the reality that in, in the U.S. and in much of Europe and in many other parts of the world, we now spend most of the day indoors. Mm-hmm. And so the numbers for the U.S. now look like about 23 out of every 24 hours are in, in a house, in an office building, in a school, or in a car. Hmm. And that has very little precedent in the history of our lineage. I mean, going back hundreds of millions of years of being in this confined space, in this realm the biology of which we largely define. I've, I've been amazed, you know, so, so I, I feel like I myself am an outdoor person, but, you know, the main outdoor I get is walking across campus between one building or another or walking from my car into my, my office. And I, I had this amazing experience a few years ago of going to a, a meeting in Nashville that was held inside a, basically an enclosed dome and, you know, the hotel and the restaurants and everything were inside this dome so that, Nobody had to go outside. It's what we're building for, right? Like, that's the future we're orchestrating. And if you look at, like, futuristic architectural designs, they're not designs that open us out toward the outdoors. They're designs that entirely seal us in. And even, I mean, I think there's a... Like, if you look at LEED buildings, like LEED-certified buildings are the ultimate and everything is sealed out. Hmm. Yeah, and so the Homo Endorus sort of relates to that reality. And, and then if that's going to be the case, like, what are we suddenly exposed to? What is this new biology uh, that we face? And, I mean, actually, the, the, one, the one comparison we can make is that some species of termites and ants live similarly. Um, hmm. But they've been doing it for millions of years and have some practice. And for us, it's, I mean, it's, it's super new. So how, how long have we been doing this? I mean, have we been Homo Endorus for a good while now, or is this a relatively recent thing? So I think it's been progressive. Like if we've done some work, on, I had a student worked on chimpanzee nests. And, you know, ch- chimp nest and other ape nests, they're really just like a bed. And so in that context, there's no, there aren't any walls. You know, the only thing that's different is that you're, you're putting your body in some sort of predictable space. And so for millions of years, we would have been doing that. And at some point, we started to move into caves and into sort of nominally enclosed environments. And the archaeological data are super crappy for when we start actually building things. But the, I mean, my guess is we're talking about several hundred thousand years ago. Uh, so that it's an, building structures is an earlier hominid story than we think. And so you see evidence for that. Like in Terra Amada in France, like just outside of Nice, there's, there's super early house sites. But those would not have been houses where people spent most of the day. Like those were sleeping sites, mostly. And in the coldest times, cooking sites. But there was... Already we'd started to move indoors a little bit, but still much of our social life, much of our daily life was still spent outdoors. And so the real shift to like being indoors most of the time, that's the last 100 years, 150 years. 
If you think about ecologists at all, you probably envision them slogging through mud, deep in clouds of mosquitoes, searching for the chimp nest that Rob described earlier. Rob is an ecologist, but he descends academically more from the Dutch scientist Antony van Leeuwenhoek, van from Jane Goodall. Leeuwenhoek was one of the first scientists to use a microscope to study microorganisms, and his subjects were the dust, eyelashes, snot, and tears, things right at hand. Looking for microbes at home might sound easier than tracking chimps in the wild, but you can't just walk in and ask to swab the windowsills or take a stool sample from someone. Instead, Rob does what's called citizen science. He asks people to collect samples themselves from their own homes and send them in so that he can analyze them later in his lab. Yeah, I mean, so we do a lot of, I mean, that's the other way in which maybe we have some uh, alignment with Leeuwenhoek is that he engaged the public a lot in Delft. He's sort of famous for being grumpy, but I think that he was mostly grumpy when people came from afar and were like, show me your fancy microscope that lets you see everything. Um, (laughs) But in the context of Delft, he knew a lot of people. He'd bring people to his house. He'd show them things. And so we've also worked a lot with the public to figure out how do we engage lots of people in science and the scientific process. And so... That turns out to work great with studies of life in houses um, because it's where people spend their time. And so people are very invested in uh, helping to study that life. And so we've worked a lot to get people to take swabs in their houses, to do little experiments in their houses. And so one part of that was a, a project where people just took swabs of dust from different parts of their house and then work them in Noah Fear at the University of Colorado Boulder we basically just decoded which species were present in that dust, where sometimes they're mm-hmm. dead, sometimes they're alive, sometimes it's a bit of leg, a, you know, an eyelash. It's a little bit of a witch's brew. But it, but it gives us a picture of, of what has been in that house. And in that first study, we found something like 10,000 species of bacteria, or species <laughs> is in quotes. Um, but th- then in subsequent studies, we've now sp- found almost 100,000 bacteria taxa in houses. Wow. And we've That's also amazing. now studied, like for fungi, we found more species of fungi in houses than there are named fungi in North America. Um, Archaea, <laughs> wow. which, you know, this weird lineage, amazing lineage of life that when I was a grad student, you know, you only knew from deep sea vents and like the, you know, the, the guts of cows. Um, mm-hmm. We found like 40 species of archaea and how like regularly in houses. So, so you said species in quotes. Uh, so, so, so how are you identifying species and you know, when, when do you know you have a different one? Yeah. So that's the, the super tricky, um, well, a tricky bit of all this is how do you see, right? And so Leeuwenhoek mm-hmm. could see by looking through a microscope, um, and subsequently, lots of people would see by trying to grow things in homes. And, and so we do those things, but we've also used these DNA approaches. And what those do is we never actually, when we use those approaches, we never actually see the microbes or the other species. Instead, we, we make a bunch of copies of a little bit of DNA. Um, and then we can compare that to this, the same sort of barcode of DNA from other species we already know. And so we use that DNA to figure out who's present. Now, the, the trick with that, well, so we can do it with anything. We can do it for insects. We can do it for fungi. We use different bits of DNA for those different groups of organisms. But the trick is then um, that that might or might not correspond to a species in the classical sense. And, and so mm-hmm. there are a couple of problems. One is that for that little bit of DNA we look at, there might be two super different species that for that little bit of DNA are the same. Mm-hmm. 
And so if you think about like Staphylococcus aureus bacteria, there are some species of Staphylococcus that are super deadly, and there are some species that are like useful guests on your skin. And for that little bit of DNA, they may be identical. And, and so because it's some other piece of DNA that encodes what makes them really different. And they evolve really, really quickly. And so in that case, we would say it's one species, but really it's multiple. Um, and then in other cases, there are ways that it works the other way. We, we think we have more than one. And in fact, it's just one that's a little bit variable in that little hunk of DNA. And, and so do you try to do the follow-up studies where you culture them and, you know, actually get a view of them through a microscope? Or is that, is that just impossible for the vast majority of them? Well, so we, we, we do, um, but with the caveat that when we find 100,000 spe- species, yeah. then the, I mean, basically we have to go one by one, um, uh-huh. mm. you know, and, and so we essentially choose things that we think might be more interesting for some reason. And so, for example, you know, we got really, so Leeuwenhoek worked a lot on, on black pepper. And when you put black pepper in water, that's where he discovered bacteria originally. It was black pepper in a cup in his house. First discovery of bacteria ever in the world. And so we, we had the dopey idea that, well, you know, if there's stuff growing in pepper, what about salt? And salt turns out to be interesting because we use it to make all kinds of foods. And we know that, at least in salt flats, when salt forms... Very often, there are these very unusual bacteria that live inside the salt crystals. Mm-hmm. And so we thought, well, let's actually see if we can culture those bacteria out of the salt crystals. If they're there, do they differ from salts from different sources? Are they in your salt in your kitchen? And so in that case, we're then taking that we have the sequence data, so we know which things we think are living there, and then we slowly grow them out. So the first step is to define something we want to focus more on, but the second step is we might not know what they like to eat. Mm. And so that could take years to figure out. And so Mm -hmm. the salt's a good example because we started that project three years ago as a four-week undergrad project. Mm -hmm. And like five weeks ago, we started to get some of the things growing. Mm. And and so it's going to be a cool project, but that's going to help us figure out the story of five out of (laughs) 100,000. That's, that's a lot of students to recruit. <laughs> so where does all of this diversity come from in the first place? I mean, we're, you know, we're, you're talking about earlier being lived up or living in these sort of sealed environments. How's all this stuff getting in? So, so I, I think it's good to think about a gradient. So for me, like one end of the gradient is the International Space Station. Which, which in our data looks just like in a bathroom in Manhattan. Um, and then the other end is like a house where the windows don't close, you know, so things are drifting in, so like a traditional mud house. Mm-hmm. And, and so in that traditional mud house model, everything is drifting in the windows, plus it's what people bring in as they come in. And when you do things that actually favor microbes, so like your body falls apart, favors some microbes, or you cook, favors a bunch of microbes, that that adds to the mix. And so in the mud house model, it's like mostly the world is diverse and your house is a manifestation of it, plus we add some things. And then in that New York apartment slash slash space station model, it's more that our bodies are diverse and they start to fall apart and it's that diversity that we're seeing. Plus, we get microbes living in unusual new habitats that we've made. 
like dishwashers and washing machines. And, um, and so the average house is between those two. So some stuff's drifting in and some stuff is these weird new habitats plus our bodies. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so I'd say, you know, if I had to st- step back and say, what's one of your running themes through the book? Um, what, one of the really major ones is that the, the, you know, our, our change in ecology to come indoors and also our efforts to, to knock back microbial diversity, right? So to, to use biocides of some kind or to put chlorine in the water or to, you know, quote unquote, sterilize our houses, that that has this sort of interesting effect of knocking back biodiversity, which lets problem species in. Um, so can we just can we just talk about that for a little bit and maybe start with um, showerheads and mycobacteria? I was really interested in that that part. Yeah, for, for sure. I mean, I just saw like on the Facebook that this ad keeps weird weird ads come up for me, right? Because it's like. <laughs> I can only imagine. Yeah, well, it's it's stuff people think I might want because of like constantly talking about, and so like I get all the Lysol ads. <laughs> and, and so there's a, ironically, yeah, little they know. And so now I'm going to talk bad about them. Um, so there's a Lysol ad right now that shows like it's a it's like cartoony bacteria, and on the right it's like you haven't used Lysol, and on the left it's you've used Lysol. And the Lysol one shows this just little thin rim of bacteria around the top. And so I think what I'm supposed to take is, as like a lesson from the ad, is Lysol is going to kill almost everything. And instead, like my take home from it is, holy shit, Lysol kills almost everything except that rim of stuff that can... <laughs> that's the absolute worst, <laughs> Yeah, right? that's the absolute worst. And so I think, like, that's a... The, going back to your, your point, Art, like, that's a general theme in the book for sure right? that when we try to kill everything we get that ring of 10 percent or one it's more of a one percent and uh-huh. it's bad bad news and i think the the tap water stuff is like that so yeah and, and i was shocked to find out how much bacteria there is coming out of my shower head so 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 what what's the deal with mycobacteria so are you guys both in your houses right now is that am I, <laughs> I i am all right perfect right so Tap water in general is full of microbes. Like, we've known this. It's no surprise. It's not news at all. Um, and that's true regardless of what kind of tap water you have. Uh, bottled water is full of microbes, too. Um, but the, then there, in the, like, the waterworks system, there are these places where you get more microbes. And one of them is in the showerhead. And what you're getting is you've got this place where water wells up just a little bit more. And it can be a teeny amount of water, but for a microbe, it's a lot. And so in places like that, you get biofilms, which is fancy scientists speak for gunk. Um, and it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's like a little apartment that bacteria poop for themselves. And the, it's super, I mean, biologically super cool because multiple species work together to make this apartment. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like if we and chimps and, and gorillas all work together to do something, um, and, and so that allows them to withstand, like, drying and wetting and times of no food and more food. Uh, and that's always there. Like, when we look at showerheads, we always see it. And it can be thicker or thinner. But it varies dramatically in which species it has. And so we did this study to try to figure out, like, what was determining which species. And the public health folks are really interested in a group of bacteria called non-tuberculous mycobacteria. Mm-hmm. And, and so these are the distant kin to, like, uh, TB and, um, uh, what do you call it? Leprosy. 
Um, and so they're, they're not, you know, t- today they're not a major problem, right? So if you're immunocompromised or you have an unusual lung architecture, they can cause problems. But for most people, even if you have the worst one spraying on you, you're, you're probably okay. Um, but nonetheless, we know that like, if you look state to state in the U S the, the incidence of the, uh, diseases caused by these is super variable. And so we wanted to figure out well, what explains that. And what we found, and this is to work with Noah Fear again, um, is, is that, uh, in municipal water supplies, particularly those with more chlorine, we see more of these bacteria. And at the same time that we published our paper on this, there was a study from European water systems and some some other global ones um, finding the same thing. And what it looks like is happening is that when when you leave residual chlorine in the water, it kills off most of the bacteria that are not chlorine tolerant. And the non tuberculous mycobacteria are chlorine tolerant. And so it basically creates this space where they don't have to compete at all. And so, I mean, if there are other bacteria, they don't actually do very well because they're not super competitive. But when everybody's gone, they hang out in the biofilm and they're just fine. Huh. And, and then they spray out in the shower, right? So every time yeah. we take showers, we're just completely covering ourselves in mycobacteria. Yeah, and the tricky thing, and this is like the... The, the wonderful thing about working with these small species is they're super mysterious. Like, wherever you point your lens, right, there's going to be some super fundamental mystery we don't understand. Like, that's glorious as a scientist. But as somebody who has to go home and use a shower, it's simultaneously the frustrating piece. <laughs> because, like, for these non-tuberculous mycobacteria, some of them are clearly problematic, especially for a sub- the subset of the population that's at risk. Some are actually triggering serotonin production and are now being used or being considered, I think they're in clinical trials, as treatment for PTSD in soldiers. And so that's another one of these like tricky things about this, you know, like, oh, which species is it? Which lineage is it? You know, the same basic group of bacteria can have super different effects. (laughs) And, And so now we can say, well, chlorination tends to favor these kinds of bacteria by the way, some are bad. By the way, some may cure your PTSD. Rob's research immediately raises questions about what we should do. If showerheads are covering us in bacteria, should we stop bathing? If treating drinking water with chlorine favors some harmful microbes, should we start drinking water more directly from wells and streams? The answer, as usual, is it depends. Some microbes are obviously worth getting rid of. You don't hear about many cholera outbreaks in the U.S. anymore because we treat water and keep them at bay. Good infrastructure breaks the transmission cycle. But Rob says we should be careful not to wage war against all microbes. They are hyper-diverse. A paper last week in PNAS estimated that there are up to a trillion species on Earth. It's also remarkably hard to tell the good ones from the bad, and they evolve really rapidly and even share genes horizontally, as we discussed with David Quammen a while back. Well, so what we know for sure is washing your hands with soap and water is super, super protective and saves millions and millions of lives. And so, like, that that we need to keep doing. Like, Mm -hmm. the more general 
like daily bodily bathing, the, the, its relationship to like disease prevention is probably pretty loose. Um, uh, and then there's a bunch of stuff that goes with it. So like, how do we feel about body odors? I mean, that's very much culturally constructed. And so even if you go from culture to culture across Europe today, how people feel about armpit odors is very variable. Um, and, and so, I mean, my guess is that if we, like, if we fast forward 50 years and look at our understanding of skin microbes is that we, we, what we discover is that we've radically changed our skin microbes. We've lost a bunch of beneficial stuff. And that some of these glands we have that feed microbes, like the armpit glands, were actually helping to favor beneficial species. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that we probably did ourselves a disservice for a long time in, in knocking a bunch of those back. Rob thinks of the microbes on our skin as a garden. Keep the vegetables and call the weeds. Probably, he says, the microbial community of our ancestors is the closest we can find to the garden we might want. And the other thing that's kind of unusual there is that we actually don't know what our historical skin microbes would have looked like. Um, and the, the anecdotes are intriguing. So like one anecdote was that there's one study of skin microbes in the Yanomami in Brazil. It's an indigenous group living a very traditional lifestyle. And there's one kid who was sampled in that study who had more kinds of skin microbes than in the entirety of samples from North America to date. Wow. wow. Jeez. And so is that kid, is that like much more like our history or is that, you know, or is that, you know, a tropical story? I, mean, I think we don't know yet, but, but the other anecdote that's interesting is if you look at mammal skin in general, and there aren't that many studies that Staphylococcus is actually more common than I would have guessed. But if you look at, and so like if, if I sample both of you right now, you'd be covered with Staphylococcus, like almost certainly. And we think of that as medically normal. And so the first thing we know is if you stop using antiperspirant, it gets much more rare. But the other thing is, if we look at which other mammals have it, it's almost all the domesticates. And so goats <laughs> and cows. And so I think it's possible that early in agriculture, there was this big mixing of skin microbes among mammals that really changed things too. And so maybe there are a bunch of stories that are layered on top of each other here. But, but it's super open. I mean, we know so much more about old grasslands in Minnesota than we know about human skin. <laughs> so so not, not to ask a totally personal question, but uh, has doing this work changed the way you, you know, you wash up, the, how you shower, the frequency of showering? Probably not the frequency of showering. Um, uh -huh. I mean, it's changed antiperspirant use. I mean, because that, um, I would say right now there aren't super clear data about what showering does and doesn't do. And, and so, and it, I've not seen any evidence that like it's super bad. Um, yeah. Uh, versus antiperspirant, like the, the data there are really clear that antiperspirant use is favoring a bunch of really weird bacteria. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, when I'm not going into a bunch of meetings and giving talks and meeting the Pope or whatever, if I can avoid it, I do. <laughs> but there's some, there's some days. Context and, dependent. And then if I'm living in Germany, smart. I can avoid it almost entirely. And everybody yeah. else is, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, um, another s sort of compelling concept that you bring up in the book is this idea of uh, absence as a disease. And, and you make the case that by knocking back biodiversity and exposing ourselves to, to less of it altogether, that we're opening ourselves up to other, other problems and other diseases. Um, 
And I, I just found that to be really fascinating. And I wonder if you could talk about the the Russian versus Finnish Karelia study. Mm-hmm. Um, I really, really love that. Yeah. So, so I mean, this is a um, the idea that absence is making us sick is, I mean, it's it's been floating around. It's got a bunch of different names in the literature. Um, but there is this general sense that there are a whole suite of autoimmune diseases like asthma, allergies, MS, Crohn's, inflammatory bowel that seem to relate to things we used to be exposed to and aren't exposed to anymore. And I would say that there's some relationship there. I mean, there's something pretty close to consensus there. But the, it's a hard thing to get good data on. And one of the interesting cases has been this one of Corellia. And so after World War II, Finnish Corellia was split in two. And so one half of it became Russia and the other half stayed in Finland. And since 1940, the lifestyles of people on the Russian side um, haven't changed very much in a lot of ways. It's relatively poor. There's still a lot of connection to the land. It's still relatively agricultural. And there's been no change in inflammatory diseases and in their incidence in that time. And mm-hmm. so asthma hasn't increased. Allergies have not increased. And if you look at the data, I mean, it's really amazing. It's not that they've not increased a lot. It's that basically they're the same as they were in 1940. Mm. And on the Finnish side, it looks like much of the rest of Western Europe. So you see, you know, asthma is going nuts. It's going up like 10% a year or something ridiculous. Allergies are the same. Crohn's, IBD. And and so 20 years ago or so, uh, a group of Finnish scientists started to pay attention to this and and to think about, well, what could be so different on these two sides? of the border. And, and one of the things that started to become clear is that exposures to nature were different. And the early literature was, was done mostly by um, uh, immunologists, public health researchers, medically inclined researchers. And so the nature part was kind of vague. Um, but there was this sense that something that was people being exposed to on the Finnish side was different. And, and then it emerged that, well, it looks like maybe what's happening is that the fins aren't being exposed to the bacteria their immune systems need to develop properly. And about this time, Ilka Hansky, who is an ecologist, um, worked on dung beetles and rare butterflies, started to get interested. And he started to pull together this sort of this nature part that what if what's going on is that in general, the, the Finnish side, nature has been lost to a greater extent. The houses have been more sealed off. Daily life is more separate from biodiversity. And, and that is leading to a loss in exposures. And, and so that looks like what, what's going on there across that border. And if you look at bacterial exposures, they're very different. Um, you can take the bacteria from the Russian side in houses and expose mice to them. Um, and and the mice don't develop the allergic uh, problems. If you take the 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 microbes from the the Finnish side and do the same thing, the mice are like Finnish kids. They develop hmm. some of the same sorts of problems. And hmm. the study that, to my mind, was most compelling to me initially in looking at this was a study within Finland, sort of, for which the stage was set by that Karelian border, um, where a group of researchers looked at kids in a single city in in Finland. Uh, and compared the biodiversity outside of the houses of those kids 
to the biodiversity on their skin, to their risk of allergy and asthma, mostly allergy. And what they found was that kids with more plant biodiversity in their backyards had different microbes on their skin and were at a reduced, a dramatically reduced risk of allergy. Hmm. And so it starts to look like this bigger picture that for a variety of reasons, our immune systems need biodiversity. They need to be exposed to biodiversity to develop normally. And when they're not, they, for, for lack of a better description, they get bored and they attack stupid things, you know, which, which might be peanut butter and it might be your own gut lining. Mm -hmm. um, and, and yeah, it's, and so it, it's, a, it's a crazy thing. And it would be sort of from the annals of obscure biology, except that it affects millions of people now. Yeah, that's just amazing. And and I mean, is this is this getting turned into actual prescriptions for, you know, how people should arrange their their yards and their lives and and you know the sorts of exposures that that they're they're getting their kids to to have. I mean, my, my sense is that you're going to see two things, and w one is people are going to be selling you stuff that you can put on your skin. Right. And because it's totally unregulated for a long time, we won't know whether it works. Right. And so there's a huge new company that's about to sell you stuff you spray on your skin to be healthy again. Which is like thousands of species of bacteria you spray on. <laughs> no, it's, that... it's one that they like. Oh, one, <laughs> one that's easy to culture. Too, one that's easy. Culture, yeah. Exactly. And, and so you're going to see that. And so it's going to be like probiotics. So for a while, it's going to be really hard to figure out what's true. And then the other side... Um, what's going on in Finland now is they've actually done an experiment where they've manipulated biodiversity in people's backyards to see if they can reduce the risk of allergy and asthma in whole neighborhoods. Huh. And, and I, I think given what we know now, that's more likely to be the successful short-term strategy because I think we're still too dopey to know which things to spray on. Uh -huh. You know, should we spray on the Yanomami kids' skin microbes or should we spray on what we had 100 years ago in the U.S.? But you're going to see both, and it's going to happen quickly because the people who are suffering from all of these problems are really desperate for solutions, and, and so there will, be, there will be an immediate response toward them independent of our knowledge. So another chapter that of many that caught my attention is this one on, on terroir, and that got me because a I love beer, b I love bread, c um, my cousin in San Francisco gave me a sourdough starter about two years ago, which I have been tending lovingly, and from which I make bread reasonably frequently. And uh, I was amazed to find out that um, the the microbial composition of sourdough starters has an intimate association with the person who's tending. The starter. So, can you can you talk about that and about about bakers in general? Yeah, I mean, I've been fascinated by this this issue. So, we make all these foods like sourdough that are full of microbes, right? That we rely on the microbes, and very often they're sour microbes. And if you if you want like the crazy thought of the day, like we have sour taste receptors, and there's no good evolutionary model for why we have them. And, huh. and so, I've started to be intrigued by the idea, like what what if part of what they do in the sort of hominid story is they they allow us to pick, if, if we're going to eat something that started to rot a little bit, we choose something that's got some lactobacillus, which are always safe. Um, but then that also makes it e easier for us to figure out fermentation because we're already primed to enjoy sour. Uh -huh. um, 
that's an aside, but that's sort of your fun future thing for the day. Uh, um, but so in, in general, like most fermented foods have a pretty tight coupling to our bodies. And so sourdough bread has lactobacillus bacteria. It has yeasts. And so we did a study where we looked at, for a group of bakers from around the world, to what extent are the yeasts and bacteria of their skin making it into their starters. And, and we found that the starters of people were more related to their skin microbes than you would expect by chance, and that that actually influenced the flavor of the bread that they made. And, which is to say, like, the flavor of the hands of the bakers influences the bread. Mm-hmm. Um, but the same is true for like, I mean, we already knew that that was true of yogurt, right? So uh, the Dannon yogurt that you buy, if it's got the Bulgaricus strain of, of lactobacillus, um, that's a strain that comes from somebody in Bulgaria, right? It came from, I mean, that's a body microbe. And so a lot of our fermented foods have this really strong association with our body. It's kind of a way of outsourcing our digestion and slowing down a food and giving it different flavors. We, we did a little bit of kimchi stuff. Um, so som, there's a word in Korean, soma. I always say it a little bit wrong, but something approaching soma, um, which is the f- flavor that the chef gives to the food and especially kimchi. Uh, and, and so with kimchi, it looks like it's the same sort of thing going on. You're a lot of body microbes in kimchi, and it seems like that that, that relates to the person making the kimchi, but also the house in which it's being made. Yeah, neat. So, so in this in this sense, uh, terroir. I mean, I, I guess ter, you know, terroir traditionally refers to the taste of a region, right? Which means, I guess, that the microbes that come from a particular region give the wine in that particular region a, a certain kind of taste. But what's different here is that here the microbes are coming from the people and from the household, but kind of similar effect, right? Yeah, it's it's very. I mean, it's very similar. It's just that there's a magic associated with the with the making, with the place of the making. And I think this, uh-huh. the Korean sentiment links it to the person. The French sentiment links it to the soil. Um, and maybe the broader sentiment is it's, it's linked to, you know, heritage and life, lit, the, you know, the life you live and the landscape and biodiversity. And that all of these things are imbuing flavors into what we eat. Um, there was a, I went to, a, I won't say the name, but, we do a little bit of work with, with breweries and which is super fun. Turns out, um, <laughs> go and, figure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and we were talking to a brewery that was doing open fermentation. So they're just letting stuff colonize the, the casks. And, uh, they were trying to do it in downtown Raleigh and they couldn't get it to work. Um, and you know, and like in Belgium, when you're doing this, like you're careful to plant a bunch of fruit trees around the building, you're doing all kinds of things that are part of the magic, but really are also part of, I mean, I suspect, uh, conditioning the microbial community you have to start with. And it turns out that in an abandoned lot and, you know, post-industrial downtown, that what you have to flavor a beer is, is not enough. Hmm. And so I think that there's a, you know, it's a little bit in the book, but it's been thinking about it a lot. There's this broader sentiment that like, how do we flavor our lives? And, and there can be conditions that are so devoid of biodiversity that we can't make food. And so in, in that context, 
I mean, I, I think probably we, there are conditions that we've created for ourselves as humans that are so devoid of a life that we're not able to make, you know, a, a healthy human either, right? Mm. And, and so there's some broader lesson. And the, I mean, the other thing that really struck me in that context is when we studied the baker's hands, we were just doing it to figure out what was going into the bread. We didn't really think the bakers would be different. But the, like, if I look at your hands, if you're not baking every day, you'd have like 3% lactobacillus bacteria in your hands. The bakers had up to 70%. And so to me, that means like by being in the bread every day, they've changed their skin. Like they have fundamentally different skin microbes. You are what you eat. Takes on a whole different connotation. Yeah, and maybe you are how you live, right? Yeah. Like I was thinking about, like I went home to think about, like what, do, like how do I raise my kids differently in light of this book? Or people always ask that kind of thing. And I think that that Baker study really made me think, like, well, what do I want their hands to say about the, their skin to say about the life they've lived in forty years? And I think that's a fair way to ask the question of all of us. Like, what do we want? If our skin is recording our exposures, what do we want our skin to say about us? And right now, most of our skin says we've lived mostly indoors, exposed to our own falling apart. Yeah, so so tell us um, if you had to peer into the future in the short term, you know what what's your next big thing that you're most excited about, and and in the long term, like five or ten years, you know what are what are we going to understand about this that we don't understand now? Uh, so I think for the general relationship between microbes and health and humans, it's gonna it will blow up even more in the next ten years, but it will be even harder to figure out what's true. Mm-hmm. Because the research frontier will be so active that each, each narrow thing will look like a big truth. And so sorting out what the really fundamental things are we need to know is going to be harder for a while. I think there's a lot of precedent that, for that in the history of science. This moment where you, you bust open the door and it's like, oh my God, this is it. But then mm. slowly realize that the light is meager and the darkness is really there's, big. There's more and so, nuance. and yeah. So I, I think that's, that's the the immediate frontier for microbes in houses and on bodies. I think the second thing is like, I'm really interested in how do we plan for the future for the next hundred thousand, 10,000 years, if we get the luxury of planning long-term. And I think if you look at most planning, we're planning for a world in which um, we've essentially not incorporated life into our daily lives. And, and, and so we, we sort of assume that we get to control all of the species around us and we have no evidence of that. And so what would it look like to plan for 100 years, bearing in mind that we will be covered in life, that our houses will be full of life? Think back to the glass-domed hotel that our producer Matt visited at the top of the show. It was in a real sense designed to keep nature out. Architects even brought the gardens inside so people didn't have to go outside to enjoy them. 
Although most of us don't now live inside glass domes, we do live out our lives in highly modified spaces. In plantless rooms, in front of computer screens, on cleaned and laundered surfaces, it's possible we've gone too far. We've barely scratched the surface when it comes to understanding microbes. Of the one trillion different species projected to exist on Earth, which do we nurture? And which do we kill? And when do we actively plant? It's possible that one day we'll manage our microgardens like we manage our botanical gardens today, but we've got a long ways to go before we can do it. If you like our show, consider making a monthly donation through our Patreon page. All you have to do is visit patreon.com slash bigbio and become a patron. As a patron, you'll also get access to bonus material, including an extra episode we just recorded in Washington, D.C. And if you can't afford a donation, no worries. Please just tell your friends about us and share your support of the show over Twitter, Facebook, or any other social media platform you like. Matt Blois helped write and produce this podcast. Haley Hansen and Chloe Ramsey manage our social media channels, and Steve Lane manages the website, bigbiology.org. Thank you to the University of South Florida College of Public Health for financial support. Music on this episode is from Poddington Bear and Blue Dot Sessions. 